welcome to Sunday morning, everyone. Woo! Uh, we want to especially welcome our parents from Parent Night. Anyone who's still around from Focus Family Night, thanks for sticking around and coming to church this morning. We hope you guys had an awesome time yesterday. We hope you have an awesome time this morning. See what your kid gets up to all the day, all the time. I was going to say all the days. <laughs> Biblical. Okay, um, first I'd like to apologize. Sorry for some of those technical difficulties. It's been one of those weird mornings of just putting out fires all day. Thank you for being patient and sticking with us. We appreciate it. Also, if you didn't get a chance to grab coffee earlier, we've got some fresh brewed coffee back there ready for you. Um, okay, I'm about to dig into a lot of announcements, and I know that can seem boring or not fun, but we're a community and we're a family, and this is your way, this is your chance to get the information about things that you can be involved in in our community, ways that you can give back to our community, ways that you can be a better part of our community, and so I'm going to ask you to dig in with me. Make it through this long list of announcements so that you yourself can be more a part of our community. You with me? Yeah, I love that. Okay. Oh, I lost my pictures. Okay, first we've got Lunch Scramble. Okay, Lunch Scramble is an opportunity for our adults to better get to know our college students and for us to all to better get to know one another. So this is going to be October 20th. We've got a sign-up sheet to go around. We'll have adults sign up, and then college students will be randomly paired with the adults host. Um, the host, you do not necessarily have to buy your lunch for your students. You'll just all go to the same restaurant and be together at the table, and you as an adult are responsible for making sure that that happens. So that's what Lunch Scramble is. It's a, just a good opportunity for us to get to know one another better and to have a more of a family atmosphere at our church and community. So that's a good opportunity. I'll be sending around a sign-up for you guys. And then also for the Confederate statue. So Willie, a lot of you guys know Willie. He's been a guest preacher here at our church several times. He's active in the community here in Denton. And he is going to be out in this, I think, in this free speech area at UNT Monday through Thursday this week. And he'll be there talking to uh, students about the Confederate statue that's in the square. So anyone who wants to join him, talking to students about that, raising awareness, um, feel free to go to that free speech area there at UNT. Okay, also, we are going to be passing around a sign-up for bread. So I don't know if you guys know, but for our communion bread, people within our community volunteer to bring that on Sunday morning. So if you're willing and interested in doing that, please, I'm going to send around a, pass, a sign up sheet and please just sign up for that. And do not let money be an issue. If you can't afford it financially, but you're willing to go to the store and pick it up, we can get the funds available for you. And it's not that expensive. We can usually get bread for just a few dollars. So don't let finances be an issue. We can take care of that if you're interested in helping bring bread. Um, don't put your chairs up after church today. Yeah, that feels good, doesn't it? It's like a special treat for the parents so we don't have to work after church. <laughs> um, I'm going to pray and then pass the offering. Lord, thank you so much for giving us this community, this community that loves and serves one another so well and that reflects your love from Scripture. And I just ask that you speak through Brad today and you have us hear what you would have us hear and that you show us more what your heart is through today's sermon. Amen. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Tyrus. Uh, the offering is going around. Uh, so what's in it is benevolence uh, envelope. Uh, so benevolence is, uh, so our church, we have um, a thing, kind of, a thing, a thing. I'm losing it. Okay, anyway. Um, 
So what it is, uh, is money that uh, is uh, separate from our regular offering, uh, and it's for the needs like within our community, uh, which range from either like p like paying rent or groceries, because uh, sometimes college students uh, mismanage money uh, and just need help with that, or like something comes up, uh, like your car needs repaired, something like that. Uh, so benevolent just helps take care of that, uh, and it's a service our church offers was really great, um, and it's something that you'll just pay back later with no interest to it. Um, so yeah, that's what that is, uh, and so from now on, we're gonna give you like a monthly update on like what we spent uh, the month prior, um, and so that can range from like $200 or to like $1,000, uh, but we just really want uh, just to make that up uh, and just let you guys be aware of it. Cool, great. Yeah, thank you, Tyrus. So a couple things on that. Um, not all of the stuff we do for benevolence are loans. That's for usually the larger amounts that uh, get closer to like, you know, a thousand bucks. We'd spend a lot of money on uh, both the folks here and in the Denton community on everything from, you know, rent, bills, school, all that kind of stuff. So we basically just want to inform you of that each month, let you know what our balance is each month so that you can pay that off in addition to what you uh, give. And so Tyrus will be updating us on that. Uh, since this is the morning of announcements, I've got a number of uh, additional announcements as always. First of all, uh, the stuff with Willie uh, on, in the free speech area at UNT is Monday through Tuesday. I realize I put Monday M-T-U, which could be taken as Thursday or Tuesday, maybe, right? Because you do T only and then T-H, but the U just really complicates things. Uh, so Monday to Tuesday, and I'm going to be there uh, on Tuesdays, and um, we're there for an hour and a half to about two hours. It's really great. It's an awesome way to meet students. It's, uh, we're basically just asking people what they think about the Confederate Memorial. If they're interested, calling the judge, uh, uh, county judge, to actually do something about it and move it into one of the historical areas. And so, uh, yeah, it'd be great if you just show up between classes or something. It's a great way to meet students. It's a great way to talk about an issue. Uh, also, if you're really brave, you can go to the courthouse at 9 o'clock on Tuesday mornings and literally sit for five minutes, you can't be late, in what Willie calls the black section, which is basically just where he sits by himself. Um, and uh, his words, not mine. And, uh, and just participate in showing solidarity. At the very beginning, he does a five-minute spiel on uh, the Confederate Memorial, and I think the more people that are there, uh, the judge takes notice. And so if that's something you're interested, talk to me and uh, give you more details about it. All right. Uh, also, a few more things. Number one is we are not meeting on the 13th. Okay, that's two weeks from now. And the reason is because we've got fall camp and my uh, motorcycle show that I support and am involved in meets here in this building. Sorry, I don't have any sway uh, in that, I don't think. They were here before we were. So the 13th, we will not meet. Okay, so two weeks from now, just not going to meet. The 6th, next week, we're going to do our awe, which is our alternate worship experience where we don't sing, we don't have a sermon We'll have you guys break up into four sections based on celebratory, lament, exploratory, and then we will have some people singing uh, up there. And they're based on our lovely flag signs, whatever you want to call that, um, and our identity sermon series. So we're going to kind of do each one of these verses in each one of the little stations. It's just a great way to do something really specifically targeted at worship in different forms of worship. And so that'll be next week, the same day that our mixer is. And I believe my last announcement, which I, I'm not going to say that I'm most excited about. I'm just going to say that it's a great deal. And uh, that is that the Metro Auto Ministry fundraiser starts on Monday. All right. So for those of you who don't know anything about Metro Auto Ministry, it's kind of blown up in the last three years. It really started as a ministry out of this church uh, to support um, people who 
primarily come from social organizations around the area, friends of the family, single moms, abused women. We now work with veterans, homeless. The list goes on and on, all right? We have eight different organizations now that we partner with, and this is a big, big deal. Uh, people from all over the Metroplex come to my shop, and we do uh, fundraising, or we do uh, car loans with no interest for less than market value. We do free car repairs. Uh, we do payments for larger things. And so this is something that uh, if you want to be a part of, be looking for ways to do. Uh, we always do a matching fund. We've raised 10000 so far in matching funds. We want to match that with another 10000 And uh, we'll have a lot of stories and testimonies from different people, some in our community, but most uh, from the greater Dallas community. So that starts on Monday, all right? Uh, that's kind of our mission deal. A lot of the other churches do support that, but they have their own kind of mission deal. Sugamar in India, Brad Willits in uh, Africa, uh, the Dallas Homeless Deal through Wiley. Um, Bible translator, all that good stuff. So that's kind of our main source of mission and uh, besides focus. And so we want you to participate in that. Sound good? All right, cool. Got through all that. Wonderful. So we're continuing on in our series on identity. I will warn you though this morning that I'm kind of tired of those of you who tell me, hey, you need to spend more than 15 or 20 minutes on your sermons. Uh, And uh, fine. I spent four hours on this one this week. So let's see how that goes. You may, after an hour and a half, decide that's not the best way for me to plan my sermons. 15 to 20 minutes, this might be right on. Uh, But we'll see what happens, all right? So we're continuing on with identity. I want to just say a couple things. Number one, that, uh, you know, if you are uh, having trouble coming up with psalms uh, kind of at the end of these sermons, which you're supposed to be doing, which means probably two or three of you are doing it, um, one of the best probably places to start is, um, and I've just sort of recently rediscovered this, but Shane and Shane, and I don't listen to a lot of Christian music, to be honest, they have two different albums on the Psalms. And I don't know if Opal, you included that in your playlist or not. You did. Okay, great. And they have two different albums just on the Psalms and they are phenomenal. We're going to use two of them, uh, next week in our, uh, all worship experience thing. And so that, that might be a great place for you to just start listening to some of that music. And it is, I mean, they basically sing the Psalms. And so you can try to kind of pair that up with so far what you've learned. And that could be super, super helpful. All right. Two is I want to reiterate something that uh, Leslie said next week. If you want to read one book of the Bible that will help you understand Christian identity, it's going to be Colossians. And thankfully, it's small, so you can read it. So many of the verses, including one of the verses we're going to use today, come from the book of Colossians. Part of the reason that is the case is because Paul hadn't been to the church there, and he wanted to make sure that church understood what Christian identity was. This is kind of the same thing in Rome and why you get a number of passages in Romans, because they hadn't gotten to see him do ministry. He hadn't really talked to them directly outside of these letters. And so it's really Romans and Colossians, but really more so Colossians, is a great book for Paul to describe what it really means to be a Christian and to give all of these in Christ passages. One of my favorites was the sermon that Leslie uh, preached last week, which um, I still think is something is so hard for us to understand. And that is that all true mysteries and realities are in Christ. One of the real big issues that a lot of us Christians have is we think that somehow when we become a Christian, all of those mysteries and realities are sort of revealed to us immediately, and there's nothing really left to do. It's like the end of Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, when Frodo like can't go back home to the Shire, you know, that really sad scene, you know, that, to me that was really sad, you know, he's not the same, 
it's the ending of the movie and you got to wait like three or four years for the hobbit to come out which i actually like the hobbit movies better than lord of the rings am i the only people okay great um we, we almost live in our Christian life like that. Like all mysteries, all realities have somehow just been explained away as soon as we become a Christian. No, that is the beginning of that mystery being unfolded in our life. Each day, we're a part of that mystery, learning a little bit more of the mysteries in Christ and the realities in Christ. And that's an ongoing process. We're in the midst, still many of us at the very beginning of that exciting, you know, epic movie where uh, something that we can't even possibly understand is unfolding, and we simply rely on Christ to make sense of that. And that's just a very different way of looking at our our Christian lives. And part of that whole objective-subjective thing that we've been doing, which some of you are just like still cannot grasp, and I understand because it's weird, is that idea that very few things in our Christian walk that are, um, you know, Uh, have happened objectively, most of these things are happening subjectively as we interact with Christ. And those realities are being revealed. And so uh, if anything, it might be good for you to go back and listen to that sermon and or read through Colossians and try to figure that that part out. So today the uh, title is Christian or Christ Follower. It is unfortunate that we have to kind of continually um, redefine what it means to be a Christian because at Christian just means follower of Christ, I-A-N, after Christ. And yet we've got to kind of break that further. And I've noticed this language kind of propping up in focus ministry and even in some of our um, uh, different church circles of a Christ follower, someone who actually follows Christ. Christian's too broad a term. So now we've got to break it down even more to say, no, no, you're not just a Christian. You're actually following Christ. So that's what we're talking about today, what it looks like to be a Christian versus a Christ follower. My subtitle for this sermon is dope. I love it, all right? And hopefully if you don't remember anything else, you'll remember this, okay? Thin and desperate, fat and sassy, or full and confident? Let me say that again. Thin and desperate, fat and sassy, or full and confident? In Christ, we're full and confident. As as Christ followers, we are full and confident in our identity in Christ. As Christians... We are thin and desperate and often fat and sassy or one or the other. So let's explain that. Ready? Ready to roll? Colossians 2, 6 through 10. Let's read it. Or actually, does someone else want to? Well, no, I want to read it. I don't want you to read it. So Colossians 2, 6 through 10. So here we go. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Objective, subjective, continue letting this mystery unfold in your life. All answers are answered. All realities are in Christ. Rooted and built up in him. You see the full and confident there? You are rooted in Christ, okay? Not rooted in anything else, and you're being built up in him. Like a tree that lasts for a long time, rooted and built up in Christ. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental uh, spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Unless he talked about that a little bit last time. But here's where we want to focus, at least for now. For in Christ, all the fullness of God or the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. All right. 
So we're rooted and established. We are full in Christ. What does that mean? It means that we have everything necessary at our disposal in Christ. There is nothing we need in Christ. I want you to think about that for a moment. Because most of us have a long list of needs. We pray them all the time. We think about them all the time. We wish we had this. We wish we had that. And I'm not just talking about materialistic stuff. I'm talking about a certain level of faith, uh, a certain a level of self-control. Whatever it is, in Christ, we are full and have everything we need at our disposal. That is what Paul is saying. But identity in Christ means fullness in him. Everything we need. And yet we act thin and desperate, some of us. Thin and desperate. We're not full. We're barely getting any food. We're desperate to eat. I have three examples of this. And one of the other things that I chose to do in this sermon today is basically pull in seven different uh, church, I wouldn't call them fathers because they're not all church fathers, but basically just historically important Christians of the past. Now, why did I do seven? Because I couldn't kind of fit them anywhere else. Uh, so I have not read most of these folks. I have read plenty about them. Some of these names you're going to hear and, and remember. Some of them you'll have no idea. I do this for your sake so that if you're interested in one of these points over the other, one of these people over the other, you can go and research because there's plenty of information on uh, these, these folks. And we haven't necessarily highlighted this enough in the series yet. We've done the Psalms. We've done the whole uh, subjective, objective, you know, uh, identity thing. But we haven't talked, I don't think, enough about some of these characters who throughout the ages have thought and considered what does it mean to be a Christian because they have a lot to add to our conversation. So I'm going to uh, uh, mention a lot of them sort of in passing. Some I'll read you a quote from, but for the most part, uh, I'm just going to mention them. So three things here in ways that we act thin and desperate instead of uh, full and confident in Christ. Okay, number one, every sin oh, is entangling me. Every sin that comes my way, I just give in to. I'm pathetic. I can't overcome it. I have not enough self-control. Everything is entangling me. I'm thin and desperate. Every difficult thing, I just can't work up the energy. It's too hard. That's going to be too hard for me. The teens read a book maybe 10 years ago called Doing Difficult Things. At least I think that's what it was called. Uh, and I love the title of it. It's probably the only thing good about the book. What is it called? The Do Hard Things. Well, that's not that much different from doing hard work. Okay, well. I don't know if the book was good, but the title was great. And that's usually what matters for most books. So every sin. Oh, it's entangling me. Every difficult thing. Oh, I just can't work up the energy. Every doubt, oh, my faith crumbles. And these are just three attitudes. There's a lot of them that we could list under this, this mentality of being thin and desperate in Christ and not full and confident in Him. So I want to talk uh, about these three things and then uh, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, anyone remember what he did? Jonathan Edwards? Yeah, anybody? First, yeah, Great Awakening. Remember what's his favorite title of his sermon? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's like great reading, right? You know, I'm talking about that's like, okay, give me that. Love to, to love to read that. Jonathan Edwards was a pretty interesting person. Uh, he grew up in a puritanical family and constantly was overwhelmed by his sin. There's a lot of, of characters like this. Luther, uh, St. Augustine, 
uh, was like this as well, um, who basically just could not ever think of a world where they could overcome their sin. Now, there's two kind of thoughts here. One is that people are just sort of like getting into sin and they're thin and desperate because they just have no ability, no self-control to overcome it. Or some people are simply just seeing sin all around them and can't get out of this kind of self-pity, I'm awful, uh, the world is bad around me. Well, Jonathan Edwards grew up in that environment. And what's funny about Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, if you've ever read the text or sort of uh, listened to it, this is one of the uh, sermons later on in his life, and it's exactly opposite of what you would think it would be. Billy Graham later entitled it Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, because that's really what he was talking about. Jonathan Edwards rejected his family in his puritanical traditions because of these ecstatic, is that the right word? I think, I don't know, experiences with God where God convicted him and convinced him that his sin was no more in Christ, that he was full. So much so that his family basically disowned him, didn't want to have anything to do with him anymore because he wasn't puritanical enough. He didn't see his sin as important enough or as serious as enough. So, oh, uh, every sin is entangling me. Every difficult thing, I just can't work up the the energy. I'm going to read you a quote from John Bunyan. You heard of Bunyan? You know what he does? No? John Bunyan? Yeah. Not, oh my gosh. Paul Bunyan. Chop down trees, yeah. The Pilgrim's Progress? No? No? Oh, man. Okay, that's fine. I won't do this the entire time. Um, the Pilgrim's Progress, a wonderful allegory on the Christian life. And uh, you know, he's got quite a bit of interesting story himself. But he, he quotes this, um, or he says this in one of the uh, most important works called The Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. I've loved this quote uh, ever since I first read it. He says, I have sometimes seen more in line of the Bible, more in a line of the Bible than I could well to Okay. I have sometimes seen more in a line of the Bible than I could well tell how to stand under. And yet at another time, the whole Bible hath been to me as dry as a stick, or rather my heart hath been so dead and dry unto it that I could not conceive the last dram of refreshment, though I have looked it all over. I love this quote because when Bunyan is ultimately saying someone who studied the Bible writes an allegory based on it, that at times the Bible is so refreshing, so wonderful, so amazing, and at other times it's as dry as a stick. But he doesn't just stop there as if he has no ability to read it, he says, or my heart is so dry that I can't find any refreshment in it, okay? Uh, One of the really interesting things about John Bunyan is uh, he, in a time period where people started to get the written Bible, started preaching and went to jail for 12 years for being an unlicensed preacher. Think about that for a moment, an unlicensed preacher. So for the first time, people could start reading the Bible, they could start understanding it on their own, they didn't need the Catholic Church, spent 12 years basically uh, studying the Bible and wrote that, uh, pinned that line well after that time period. Every difficult thing, oh, I just can't work up the energy. The third one, every doubt, oh, my faith crumbles. There's this guy, Timothy of Baghdad, who was amidst uh, uh, Arabic countries. So he was living in Arabic countries uh, when a lot of Christians were being persecuted at the time. He was, uh, you know, um, pretty well educated, and he'd had these conversations with the caliph, which was basically the person kind of in charge of faith around that area. And you read through some of these excerpts, these conversations, and he's just 
very confident, uh, but mutually has a bunch of mutual respect for this caliph. And they go on and on. If you're interested at all, if you have a Muslim friend, uh, you're just interested in some of the major arguments uh, for faith. Remember, Islam was very, very, well, Islam was pretty new at this time. We're talking 8th century. And uh, these arguments back and forth are unbelievable. They're amazing. And in a time where many of us probably would have easily said, well, I can't possibly argue against this faith. I have no real, uh, you know, strong arguments. I have no real ability to kind of handle someone else telling me their arguments that are so well thought out in a time period, particularly when he's living in a predominantly Arabic world. One of my favorite quotes that, uh, that he has is, so, you know, he goes through these arguments over and over. The caliph kind of just basically says, well, I guess, I don't know, kind of like doesn't have an argument back. And finally, at the end, uh, you know, the caliph, who which kind of uses the argument that a, a lot of Muslims that I've interacted with use, and that is the Bible has been tampered with throughout the ages, right? You know, so our scripture hasn't been tampered with. It's only three or 400 years old, but yours has. And he very wisely, instead of just sort of like being defeated by this, you know, a claim or whatever, says, you know, Muslims and Christians have their own views on things and have lived quite a while. It's probably fair to say both have done a pretty good job of protecting their sacred sources. And this argument was such a powerful argument to the caliph. He basically stopped these conversations and stopped talking to Timothy. But before that, these were really, really, really great uh, and interesting conversations. So, every sin is entangling me, every difficult thing, I just can't work up the energy, every doubt, my faith crumbles. In Christ, we are not thin and desperate. Our our faith doesn't have to crumble every time something comes our way that we don't understand or can't argue against. So many of us think about faith in the wrong context anyway. We think about faith being our faith. And yet faith is really at its core trusting God. It's about, do you trust God? Not do you understand everything? Do you know everything? But do you really trust who God is? The difficult thing part, this I think happens so much of the time when you're young in your faith, you kind of get into Christianity and you realize, well, God's asking me to do things that are way too difficult for me. You know, I've got to lead core this week and not be able to go to the concert. How many times is, insert popular singer's name, going to come to uh, American Airlines Center, that's just gonna be too difficult for me, right? We're not thin and desperate in Christ. Every difficult thing, Christ's energy is what, uh, what compels us. So the second point, fat and sassy are full and confident. And I would I guess that many more of you are in this uh, stage of your development since we get a lot of leaders from Focus in our ministry, since we have a lot of a young adults who've kind of passed through this. And so you might want to pay potential, uh, uh, more attention to this. We're going to read through Romans 8, yeah, Romans 8, 38 through 39. And I'm going to just warn you ahead of time, I'm going to take one of the most comforting scriptures and uh, maybe destroy it for you. I'm not for sure. But then rebuild it. So, you know, that's fine. Sometimes you've got to destroy and then rebuild. We'll be okay. So Romans 8, 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, we love that passage. We absolutely love it. Of course, people early on decided this was proof enough uh, for 
some of the, the Reformed theology that basically believed that there was no possible way you could lose your salvation. Problem is, he's not talking here at all about salvation. He's talking about the love of God. And not only that, but this is the same Paul that in Philippians says, work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. So go put those together. This idea that this is going to be, you know, something that, oh, well, you know, your salvation is completely fixed. It can never be lost. It's, uh, it has nothing to do with you, you know, and these things are simply meant to say that they can't separate us for how much God loves us, not from salvation. So one of the problems we have uh, as Christians is we get fat and sassy, okay? So if the one side of this is thin and desperate, and we live this life where we're never full, we're never confident in Christ, we can easily become too confident and too complacent in our spiritual lives. And this is just pretty easy to do if you've been walking with Christ for any period of time. So let me give you a few attitudes that, uh, that come from this. Well, actually, you know what? I want to read one more. Uh, no, no, I'm going to read two more. I'm sorry. This is just too good. Uh, so, this guy named John Amos Comenius, cool, right? Now, that name you probably haven't heard unless you're into the UN. Uh, this guy's life, if you're not going to read anybody else's life, read his, okay? He was poor, grew up an orphan. He lost two wives. Uh, he lived in Moravia. Uh, his religion basically had disappeared. His, his sect of Christianity had disappeared by the end of his life. Uh, his language was almost completely lost by the end of his life. And yet... This guy is on the Czech $200 note. He has multiple European universities named after him. He has an award from the UN, which is one of the highest awards you can be given. This guy was a superstar, but only way after, uh, what, what, say it again? John Amos Comenius. Okay, yeah, great, perfect. So he, like John Bunyan, wrote this allegory on the scripture, and I can't, I'm just going to say this quote should probably be our quote for Christian identity and how Christians often are frauds uh, in really taking their identity from Christ and rather taking their identity from a lot of other places. So remember, this is just a humble guy. Uh, he's kind of walking through life in this uh, allegory. He sees himself as kind of a school teacher, like a lowly school teacher in a rural area. All right, so I'm going to read this. It's a little bit longer. While the authorities simply assign most citizens of the labyrinth a craft or a trade, they give the pilgrim an opportunity to explore for himself a broad array of 17th century occupations. Now, many of these occupations are pretty new, all right, in the 17th century, but get to that later. A pattern slowly emerges. The pilgrim's guide directs his attention to a specific profession that at first glance seems quite attractive. But upon further examination, he sadly realizes that what he thought was so promising is actually a fraud. Doctors who boast they can heal the sick have no real understanding of the human body. This is one of my favorites because if you read much through uh, the annuals of medicine and society, I mean, even 120 years ago, we were trying to put milk in humans uh, to replace blood. I'm not even remotely kidding you, okay? And then not just milk, but then pig's blood and a variety of other things to replace their blood. Like, that's 120 years ago, guys. Just be glad that the medical issues you're dealing with today, uh, at least you have doctors who, they're better at pretending they know things than they were 200 years ago. Lawyers who had advertised their skill at adjudicating disputes, but contribute to yet further conflict. 
Alchemists who claim they can turn base metal into gold end up scalding or even killing themselves. Pretty sure I've seen Josh do this at the house. But Comenius reserves his most caustic comments, however, for one of his own callings, that of a scholar and a teacher. He starts his tour by observing young students struggling to learn as they memorize useless facts and endure senseless beatings by their masters. The situation hardly improves if they survive this harrowing experience. They engage in empty activities and despite claims to the contrary, seem to care little for the pursuit of truth and knowledge. Instead, they spend their time attacking their rivals with a fury that shocks the pilgrim. I observed here a cruelty unusual elsewhere. They spared neither the wounded nor the dead, but mercilessly hacked and lashed at them all the more, each more gladly proving his valor against the one who did not defend himself. If this is not a quote describing Christianity throughout the ages, fat and sassy Christians, I don't know what is. Frauds. And that's ultimately what we are when we become fat and sassy Christians. We're just frauds. We really have lost our identity in Christ. So let me give you three examples of this, just like I gave you three examples of the one before. No sin is really that urgent to get rid of. (laughs) I've got time for that. Okay? No sin is really that urgent to get rid of. I've got time for that. Okay? Uh, Not to offend you Methodists too much, but I met a number of Methodists in college who believed in this idea of perfect sanctification who either misread John Wesley or unfortunately might have read him too clearly. And the idea was that within this lifetime, John believed, John Wesley, you could attain perfection. Now, what's lesser known is his brother Charles Wesley, who had a much more scriptural view on this and believed that it was near impossible to obtain any kind of perfection. And yet, we still have Christians today that more or less believe they're sinless. Now, they wouldn't say that, but they act as if their sin is unimportant. I've got plenty of time to deal with that. Why deal with it now? It's not that urgent. And unfortunately, too many Christians in what Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace believe this terribly unfortunate idea. In Christ, we take sin seriously and we deal with it. It's not about time for that. Time for healing, sure, but repentance is immediate. Nothing should be, this is the second attitude, nothing should be expected of me. (laughs) I've done my time. Nothing should be expected of me. I've done my time. In our cohort meeting yesterday, sitting with Tom Green, who leads Arlington Church, he talked about how we should all have good news to share with people. But he made an important point. If my good news is five or 10 years old, how much is that really gonna connect with someone? If my good news isn't here and now and frequent, And, you know, timely, what what is that really, what power is that, that God did something good 10 or 15 years ago in my life? Guys, this is particularly challenging for those of you who are getting into your mid-20s and late-20s and above. Nothing should be expected of me or not much. I've done my time. And what happens with this attitude, I think, really strangely, is that people are pretty okay with being in church and around church, but take on no responsibility because for them, church isn't about the words, but the rhythm and meaning of the, uh, the rhythm and sounds of the songs. St. Augustine said this, or Augustine, I always want to call him Augustine like the grass. That's not what his name is. Uh, and I think, which is an okay analogy uh, back way, way early on when music started to be introduced in churches, 
that he had this problem with Christians caring more about the sounds of songs and not about the actual meaning of songs. And many of us, if we're not careful, we play church as if nothing should be expected of me. I've already done my significant stuff. We gotta be really careful of that fat and sassy attitude. Last one, nothing is really more important than my self-development now. I've helped plenty of other people. Nothing is really more important than my self-development now. I have helped plenty of other people. I'm gonna turn to Gregory the Great for this one, and this will be the last person that I quote here. So Gregory was one of the early church fathers. He has a lot of history, a lot of interesting ideas, but I just wanna read one that I think is really particularly important for this idea that... uh, My spirituality is really about my personal development because I've already helped enough people, which I see more and more in Christians, including myself today. Like Moses entering the tabernacle, the active person leaves the crowd, puts aside the noise of the outward world, and enters into the secret place of the mind. This is not a retreat of the person with himself, but a consultation with God, where one hears internally and silently and then makes one's contemplations known to the world through one's behavior. Gregory believed that good leaders pursued this habit daily, which I have often said is not important, but Leslie always said that, so now that I've read that, I'm thinking more daily habit, as they are faced with uncertainties. Oh, that's my time. Cool. So this inward retreat with God, uh, not with myself. So let me just read back through these uh, So, because I think what's uh, challenging and troubling about these uh, is that we didn't really talk too, through much of them. It would be too hard. They like their own sermon series. I'd rather just give you some sort of specific examples of different people who have thought through these things. Uh, but the, the, uh, those who are thin and desperate, every sin is entangling me. Every difficult thing, I just can't work up the energy. Every doubt, my faith crumbles. Fat and sassy. No sin is really that urgent to get rid of. I've got time for that. Nothing much should be expected of me. I've done my time. And nothing is really more important than my self-development now. I've helped plenty of other people. We have got to learn how to be full and confident in Christ. And confident isn't overconfidence, and it's not confidence in ourselves. It's confident in the fact that God is good and will do what he has said he's going to do. We can't get too confident. And we've got to be full, full of knowing that God has given us everything at our disposal to do the things that we need to do and doesn't just expect us to live on, you know, uh, spiritual poverty for our entire life. That's the whole opposite of what he's trying to do. I'm going to read Psalm 16, which I think sums this up decently, and, uh, and then we'll be done. All right. Psalm 16, I'm just going to read it in the NIV, which I told you not to do, but this one's pretty good in the NIV. So here we go. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord with him at my right hand. 
I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of your life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So as is uh, um, kind of tradition around here, uh, we take a few questions kind of at the end of the sermon, particularly in a sermon like this, which is more like a book um, outline. Um, what questions do you have? If any. And just remember, this is what happens when I have three hours of preparation. Okay? My notes read more like a book outline than uh, an actual sermon. Where go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so of is like a big thing, right? Like in that first... No, I know, I know, I know. I'm just saying of is a big thing uh, back then. Like everyone has like a of and then where they're, you know, did most of their ministry. That's what I'm saying. So some of these guys are, are going to have those weird last names. And the cool thing about him is he's got the arguments with the different, uh, um, you know, Muslim folks. I mean, you know, we're still in a Christian nation in the majority. And we can't even have, you know, good arguments with, Christian, with non-Christians. He was in the minority and very respectfully uh, allowed these... Uh, what would call, we would call doubts uh, be presented to him and then was able to respond, which is pretty neat. Yeah, Captain. Yeah, well, the, uh, so she asked basically with the thin and desperate idea, with the whole thorn in the flesh, uh, and Paul's basically like, just chill out. My weakness is made manifest uh, in your, my strength is made manifest in your weakness. Like, how do we deal with that? Well, first of all, the thorn in the flesh is really super weird and no one really knows what it is. Uh, like, it, could it be a limp? Could it be like a vision? Like, what's happening really, right? And I think we gotta be careful with those passages. Um, but I don't think Paul's at all saying it's not urgent to deal with. He's saying that the, the sin will be dealt with, your weakness will be dealt with in Christ. And I think the idea that no sin is really that urgent to get rid of, in Christ, we, God has no acceptance, no room for sin to go unchecked. I mean, if he did, he wouldn't be good, right? So the idea is not that we just allow it to go unchecked, it's that we immediately take it to God in uh, repentance, which is really our response to it. Repentance is ultimately accepting, I've done something wrong, but you will make something great out of this weakness. What often Christians do instead when they're fat and sassy uh, is they basically downplay the sin or ignore its importance and use grace as a way to uh, hide its significance. I can't tell you how many Christians who've committed egregious sins either have written about or talked about, well, you know, all sins are really the same. And I want to be like, where'd you get that idea? Yeah, they're same in the sense that they separate us from God. And, you know, one sin is breaking the whole law, but they have no similarities in their significance and natural consequences. Not at all. That's, that's a crazy idea. Um, does that kind of make sense somewhat? No? No? Maybe? Yeah? You're like, I guess so. Yeah, sure. I don't know what you just said, but fine. Yeah. All right. So I think the urgency is in repentance. It's, it's uh, you know, um, and knowing immediately that you're handing that over to God and being confident that he has the ability to take care of it, right? Because the opposite attitude is, oh, every sin, I, you know, I'm desperate, I'm terrible, you know, everything is bad. Uh, this is definitely a balancing act. There's no doubt about it. And that's why it's hard. It's, it's you know, how do you be full and confident in Christ without thin and desperate and without, you know, fat and sassy? That's hard. It's, it's, if nothing else you remember, it's just knowing that you've got to figure out how to do that in the middle. Yeah. Well, I think as you get older, one of the things that happens is, uh, oh, so how do you avoid, uh, um, you know, the whole idea of like, uh, uh, I've done my time and now there's not really anything much that should be expected of me. For sure, guys, when you graduate, particularly college, things slow down. 
But when things slow down, that doesn't mean there shouldn't be constant progress in your life. Uh, and I think what happens when things slow down, and you're, particularly those of you who are in college, have had kind of this pretty consistent upward tick of spiritual progress. And as you uh, become an adult, this, this is what happens. It's much more seasonal. You go down, and then you go up, and then you go down, and you go up, and that's part of life. But that up and down, up and down is progressing upward, okay, even though sometimes it doesn't seem like it. And I think the biggest antidote to that is kind of what, uh, um, what's his name, Gregory the Great talked about at the beginning, is that it's this constant decision that you go back in consulting God and spending time with God so that you can have, um, you know, a better understanding of who you really are. And rather than this idea of, well, my whole goal in life is to become better personal development nonsense, a better um, goal would be to be able to spend consistent time with God, getting a better understanding of who you really are. Because that's the hardest part for many of us is some of us have been tricked into thinking that Christian maturity is my personality gets better each day, my, um, uh, you know, sin struggles get better each day. I'm not for sure that's always the best way to look at that. Because, you know, for me and my life, saying that your sin struggles get better each day, God has picked certain sins in my life that were less core and more periphery and dealt with those first. And when it's time for him to deal with the core sin, you know, my sin level sort of goes, you know, down quite a bit when it's time to deal with that big one. And so I think the bigger thing is that we know, and we have the good news of God dealing with these things. And I'm not trying to pretend like I'm getting, you know, increasingly better or uh, that I'm the one having to deal with this thing. It's a constant knowing that, that, that God is really doing those things. Um, and I mean, you know, the complacency thing, that's just a part of those seasons. But I think if you find yourself talking a lot about what you used to do, and most of your good news stories are predated, uh, then you know pretty quickly that, you know, there's not much going on in your spiritual life at the moment or currently. Is that fair enough? Maybe? Yeah. One more, and then we'll be done. Yeah, so our question is simply that, uh, you know, the whole, um, I've done my time helping other people, now it's sort of me time or self-development. This is a lot like discipleship and evangelism. We've done a really good job of separating as if they're two different activities that have nothing different. You know, right? I mean, evangelism is ultimately good news. Christians have to hear the good news, uh, you know, just as much as non-Christians do, and probably more so, right? So this is the same thing. When you're helping people, that is not some separate thing uh, than, you know, uh, helping yourself. Not in Christ, it's not. Uh, we can be, it can easily be that when it's, you know, um, sort of counseling only or, you know, methods that are apart from Christ. But uh, we get filled up from our ministry to other people. And I think that's really important. And when you're young, particularly in, in college and focus, I remember doing a whole lot of activity and not getting, I would just deplete it at the end of the day. I'd go kind of crazy. And some of that had to do with a lot of my activity was about just that. It was activity, checking things off, getting things done. And I wasn't very present with people. Uh, and so I saw those th two things as very, very different. Now, again, this does not apply to like folks who are like counseling and doing social work, some of those things. You know, you've got to be careful because sometimes you are depleting your resources. But in Christ, we can know that those resources are constantly being refreshed through the Spirit in our lives. And if it's not, and those two things are separate categories, we've got to ask ourselves sort of where is the disconnect? Like what's happening here? Like how if God's character is a character that, you know, like we talked about two weeks ago, loves too much, you know, uh, risks himself for the sake of others, how is that not connecting to me being refreshed in those moments? And certainly Paul's got his own times of being, you know, hurt and uh, beaten and almost murdered and things like that. And he talks about how in his sufferings, and I'll reference you to the 
we talked two or three weeks ago, how that actually builds us up in our relationship with Christ. I know it doesn't answer your questions. Again, a lot of your questions are super practical. This is in no way a practical sermon. Uh, I don't know if you caught that, right? Uh, but this is very high level, uh, trying to figure out a balance between two things. And yet it's an important one for us to, to really think through. And if there's one idea I would leave you with, and that's it, it's that, guys, in Christ, I, I just if you write one thing down, this is all you need to do. In Christ, you have everything you need at your disposal. That's it. Can you think of an, another environment where that's true? You've got every resource you possibly need in Christ. And that takes a lot of trust because most of the time we feel emptied, okay? And I'll take you back to what Bunyan said. It's often emptied because our hearts aren't really approaching uh, God or understanding the fullness that we have in him. And this is just a human condition. All of us feel this way, right? But being confident in that God will do what he said he's going to do in you is one of the hardest things to ultimately develop in terms of faith. Uh, and it's not a daily, what happened just now? Well, I, I guess I'm done. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a daily battle. All right, we're going to take communion. And uh, we uh, um, take communion here a little bit differently, slightly. We're going to break from here, by the way, uh, in terms of uh, our service together. Um, but we just take the bread, dip it into uh, the juice, and we're a little bit loud, and our loudness is no disrespect or irreverence. Uh, we believe that we ought to be really excited about the things that, uh, that Christ has done in us. And that's where the sort of celebratory mood comes from. But certainly, if you don't feel comfortable with that, you can sit, you can think, um, talk to someone nearby you. Uh, that's great. So I'm going to say a prayer, and then uh, we'll dismiss. Gods throughout history have uh, often held things back from people just to get them and manipulate them to do what they want them to do. God, you are not a God like that. You have given us everything up front that we need to live a holy life. And we thank you for that. Help us in a day and age where we have confidence in just about nothing to make us confident in Christ. To help us see in our identities uh, the access to you, the confidence that we can have, the fullness that comes from a life in you. Uh, we are so, so sorry that most days we neither feel full nor confident in you. So help us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us that fullness and confidence to approach God. We love you. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.